Hey, it's episode five of the TV Junk Podcast, and this is Pistol. Damn that television! What a bad picture! Don't get upset. My name is Greg. Welcome to the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at TV Junk Podcast, and you can send any comments or questions to tvjunkpodcast at gmail.com. On the show today, making their return after appearing on the uh, Pam and Tommy episode, and someone who, quote, fucking hates the sex pistols. It's Doug Nagy. International friends, it's a pleasure to be with you today, and thank you for the invite, Greg. Uh, uh, I'm excited to uh, dig deep into this uh, hatred of the of the Sex Pistols. Also on the show, uh, someone who uh, told me they used to be a punk rocker. It's Sean Dwyer, and Sean, we got to unpack that one, because I got to find out what the hell you mean by uh, punk you rocker. Know, I said a little bit of a punk rocker. You know, oh, yeah. we, were, we were in a punk band, you know, we were part of the scene, um, but, you know, I kind of know, I think, where Doug's coming yeah. from with his hatred of the pistols, so. Well, Sean also still has a uh, <laughs> clothing pin through the head of his cock. <laughs> so, yes, that, 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 punk's that, not dead. <laughs> doesn't come up on the podcast very often but it's true <laughs> and uh, uh making their long awaited debut on tv junk it's the soundboard <laughs> <laughs> jhlj uh thanks for coming on the show well thanks for having me greg i I'm glad I finally uh, got to come on the show. Uh, I was waiting for you to do an ER episode or a Too Close for Comfort episode, but Pistol will get it done, I think. It's it's hard to find uh, all of those early Too Close for Comfort uh, episodes, you know. I mean, uh, some of that Cosmic Cow stuff was pretty edgy. Oh, for sure. A hundred percent. I, I, I actually watched an episode. When did I watch that? Last month, an episode that had a um, very touchy, you know how they, the old sitcoms would have like really dark episodes every once in a while, like the, sure. you know, uh, what did, what's they used to say? What did they say in the announcement? Uh, a very special episode of Too Close for Comfort. I watched one of those and it was, uh, it was pretty dark. I'm not going to spoil it here because we will be covering it. In the too close for comfort <laughs> podcast in the near future. Was it uh, was it more uh, dark or less dark than the uh, different strokes episode where uh, uh, Gordon Jump was uh, touching Dudley? Less, less, okay. less. <laughs> definitely less dark. Yeah, because that was dark. That was very very yeah. dark. We we won't be doing any different strokes. Well, you know what? I don't want to say never. You never know if different strokes is going to come up on the on the TV Junk podcast. So uh, before we get into talking about the show, I kind of wanted to go around uh, uh, the proverbial table here and uh, talk about uh, how you each of you kind of discovered the uh, the Sex Pistols and if you know you appreciated their cultural impact that they had at the time, if you even felt they had any. But Doug. We'll, we'll we'll start with you and and how what started your hatred of the pistols well i, I grew up listening to like, like heavy metal and then got into punk rock by way of the ramones so i heard the sex Bravo. pistols <laughs> dancing <laughs> i fucking love dancing uh legit guilty as charged uh but with this... <laughs> uh, with the sex pistols 
I always hated uh, Sid Vicious and Johnny Rotten was an insufferable douchebag at all times, right? And it's uh, they basically were put together to sell clothes. And I always kind of thought that these guys that are supposed to be counterculture heroes standing up to the man, they're just a fucking infomercial. So shut the fuck up, be a little bit humble, right? So that kind of always rubbed the wrong way. And most of their songs... I'm not a fan of, to be honest. I thought that they were okay. Some songs are great. Okay. So like bodies is an incredible song. Like bodies is my favorite song that they do. And there's a couple that are, are okay. Uh, but they really are about the hype uh, in and spreading a brand, right? It's there's a sales saying that says you sell the sizzle, not the steak. Well, they're mostly sizzle, right? And that kind of didn't sit well with me for the attention that they got. But that being said, I really liked this series very, very much. And I like kind of the behind the scenes look at that. And they're, to be honest, very forthright with the fact that that was the case. So that took me aback. Uh, I I enjoyed it very much. And uh, yeah, I look forward to discussing it today. Uh, Sean, what about you? When did you uh, kind of discover the Sex Pistols? Well, you know, as I said, like Jay and I were in a, punk band we did like a college radio show throughout the 90s so I, I don't remember exactly when but you know certainly became aware of them i was never like the biggest sex pistols fan kind of like doug like i i thought they were a little bit more they're a little too nihilistic for me you know like i just felt like they were just dumb asses and just kind of uh loud and obnoxious and their music so they had a few good songs but the the songs kind of blend together for me i was more of like a buzzcocks kind of guy i guess but <laughs> um but yeah you know i and, and i think this show actually i mean we'll get into it but i feel like it actually gave me a bit of a new appreciation for them on some level i mean i do agree they are kind of uh just you know a marketing ploy more than anything else but you know there there was a reason why i think they took off like they did you know the time was right in england at that point and uh it makes sense jay i i think i'm kind of in line with doug and and sean but it's interesting watching this show, assuming that a lot of it is obviously based off of real events. It's, I think, pretty seems pretty accurate in the mo in like the broad strokes. Watching a story about the Sex Pistols as um, a fully uh, matured adult male with fully matured body parts and everything uh it, it's it's interesting like set being able to separate out what doug is talking about the idea of them being put together as uh, under the surface a, a clothing brand uh, operation but also recognizing that they they were young kids and that there was this movement that while it might not have been the most interesting on the surface when it comes to the Sex Pistols, it, it seems that based on this series, um, there was a lot of interesting influence. And I know a lot of people talk about the Sex Pistols more and who they influenced rather than um, their own contribution musically. Um, they, they kind of lit the spark for a lot of bands. It, it, and so did you know the Ramones and 
the other bands that are usually talked about in that conversation. But I, I really enjoyed the series. And I, I think the conversation is, you know, you can talk about whether or not the Sex Pistols themselves were a, a you know, a good band. I, I think it's pretty clear Sid Vicious was just a used to kind of portray that that image but there's also that level of talking about the show itself as a music biopic and you know a lot of those a lot of these types of shows fall into certain trappings you can't help but feel it feels a little i don't know lame whenever you hear someone saying like what if you tried this and they play the famous chord from the song that suddenly comes to them it it feels a little lame but i was actually able to kind of distance myself from that and just watch it as a show about a bunch of kids in the uk who become inspired and pull something together very loosely and end up catching some wave that they ride and ultimately crash but um i i liked it in that regard uh for me um i didn't really uh i discovered the sex pistols until um after i was introduced to some of the other uh punk bands um like i don't know if you guys are familiar but i'm i'm sure you're familiar with weird al yankovic but on all of his albums he used to do i've heard of him yeah yeah he does this <laughs> uh this polka um uh version where he just does like covers of uh, little bits of covers of, from famous songs and kind of does like a whole um, uh, piece and put it all together. And that's kind of where I discovered The Clash because uh, he did a little bit of Should I Stay or Should I Go in one of his polka parties. And uh, and that kind of got me into, I kind of discovered the Ramones from there. Um, but I kind of, after that, I went into more of the, uh, of the, uh, uh, the, the Canadian punk rock scene like Teenage Head and the Forgotten Rebels uh, who I just saw last Saturday who are still kicking around um, nice. before the Doughboys yeah b before I got into uh, uh, the Sex Pistols and uh, you know I mean I've, I've listened to the album a few times and I mean uh, I, I kind of enjoy them for what they were um, but uh, uh, so I was I was super interested in, in, in watching uh, this show just to, you know get a little bit more of uh uh, the background uh, from a specific uh, point of view. So, uh, Pistols, six-part show on FX and uh, Disney+, Plus, written by Craig Pierce. It's based on the book Lonely Boy by uh, Steve Jones and Ben Thompson, directed by Danny Boyle. Um, so, Steve Jones, uh, uh, who was the guitarist of the band, the original bass player, again, Glenn Matlock, uh, drummer Paul Cook, and the estate of Sid Vicious were all on board with the, the show with FX to do it. Johnny Rotten, of course, uh, was against doing it. Uh, he actually took everybody to court over it and lost. Judge, because... Judge Judy? Is that that when he was appeared on Judge Judy? I saw that episode. <laughs> he won that one. He yeah. won on Judge Judy, yeah. So maybe, maybe he should have had better luck, uh, the draw with, with the judge. <laughs> and uh, old Judy would have uh, ruled in, in his favor. Um so the show kind of has a, a, a few arcs, uh, like you know, there's the forming of the band and writing Anarchy in the UK. Um, then it kind of transitions into like uh, uh, Sid joining the band and getting rid of uh, Glenn Matlock, uh, releasing God Save the Queen, and then kind of recording the album. And then the last arc is, is like the tour and kind of the end of the band. Um, 
so I suppose we can kind of break it down uh, into into those little bits uh, while we talk about the show. But uh, so, like overall, uh, what did you think of the show, Sean? I was a big fan of the show. Uh, I guess you know we should mention Frank's not here. He thought he might come on, but I I can give you a direct quote from him. It's all right. Let's typ- get into it. Typical. <laughs> What no wait, what do you say? Typical biopic garbage, I believe is the quote. Uh, and we've obviously had a lot of discussions recently, particularly with TV stuff. That's you know biopics based on real people, and you know sometimes they seem to have this satirical edge, or they're kind of making fun of the subjects a little bit. And I thought this one was one of the better biopic TV shows I've seen. I mean, wow. it, it has this bit of a sense of humor. It doesn't. It's not. I would say it doesn't feel like it's making fun of the subjects. Like I, I felt like Danny Boyle is a fan of the Sex Pistols, and it certainly comes across like a Danny Boyle film. I mean, he's he's always had great movies about youth subcultures, and he's got a very energetic style, which works perfectly for the Sex Pistols. And so, yeah, I just thought it came together really well. It felt pretty accurate from what I knew of the story, although I'm by no means an expert. There's lots of things I found out that I didn't know um, about their kind of the formation of the band, etc. Um, and yeah, I mean, I just, there are a couple, you know, there, like Jay was saying, there are some of those biopic cliches in there, but I did not think that it was like super, like full of those. And, you know, aside from maybe some of the sentimentality with like, Steve Jones in particular, who, you know, it's based on his books, so maybe that's part of the reason. But uh, aside from that stuff, I thought it was pretty great. Jay, what about you? I enjoyed it as well. Um, I, I think I'm just not that precious about the, the Sex Pistols history to look at this and have objections towards it being told in this way that is almost like a fairy tale, like it's a fanciful telling right down to the cinematography and the editing and, um, you know, the star, like the Starman singing sequence is a perfect example of that. And it feels very much from the perspective of a late teens, early twenties kid wanting to be a rock star. And I think it works really well in that regard. And there were things that I had no idea about that I learned from this series I didn't know the whole Chrissy Hind connection. Um, I, I don't know how, like, it feels like they really leaned into it for the, the show to have a, a love interest there or, like, a crush. And I think it worked. Like, I think the, the, the show did a great job at humanizing a group of people that have kind of just been presented as you know, uh, dirty, loud, uh, rotten punks and getting at something uh, kind of, you know, real behind them, even though this is a an adaptation. Um, and the performances, I, I thought across the board were, were great. Um, it felt like a lot of people were capturing the essence of the members of the band and Malcolm, uh, without doing just uh, impersonations, the person who played Johnny Rotten, I thought I think was really good, and 
he that character in this show I thought was kind of an interesting complex character and his relationship to the band was interesting um, there are things in here that I I wonder if it's like you know how how far is this sort of expanded upon to just create a, an interesting TV show but something like you know Doug mentioned bodies and I agree I think that's probably their best song um, also most controversial song but the backstory behind that song that is portrayed in this I had no idea about that so when that episode was happening I'm just like what is hap what what's going on here and where it ends up I thought it was quite powerful um, and and said something about Johnny Rotten whether or not it's just you know a statement said in the body of this show or in reality as well I'm not sure but it worked within the the context of the series so I I, I really liked it I was kind of surprised Doug I thought it was a wildly entertaining series I thought that it had it built very well um, up until the like when they write the song bodies like that the show just really built to a wonderful point at that and i think that might have been the halfway point and i remember like i stopped watching after that episode and then i picked up the following day and i go this is a great show you know what like this is a really good show this is interesting uh, one of the things that i liked and i disparaged the band earlier for uh selling clothes but what I really liked was it kind of got the vibe in the first couple episodes that there was something going on at that shop. There were people coming in and out. They were giving clothes to kids. They were trying to get a band together. They were giving it to other artists. So there was a subculture vibe that was very localized. And through the band, they spread that around the world, right? So that is something. And to Jay's point earlier as well, you kind of forget that they were kids when they did this. And that's incredible, right? It's uh, they become icons, and you just say, "Oh, these guys are dirtbags." Whatever. Well, you forget that they, most of us, were could have been dirtbags when we were that age, right? And if we had the kind of exposure that they had, it would be we would be that different. I probably wouldn't be, right? So it's uh, kind of put me down a few pegs with regards to my hatred for the band, and uh, <laughs> and that's that's just good storytelling as well. Right, because it's easy to be dismissive. It's easy to kind of be flippant, um, but when you kind of look behind the curtain and go, "Okay, you know what? No, something did happen." And uh, even if they do have just a couple of good songs, well, a guy was high on speed for a week and learned to play guitar. There was one guy in the band who could play, and they still put an album out that made top, like top hundred albums of all time. Right, so there is something to it. Uh, this was a very good telling of the story. I think everybody in the band, including Johnny Rotten, should be happy with how it turned out because I think uh, I think this was an exceptional series. Uh, all the actors were great. The portrayals were great. It was uh, it was thoroughly enjoying and highly recommended to everybody. And just on the note of the clothing thing, <clears throat> I think I, I mean I agree that the look at the sex uh, clothing shop really illuminated some of that aspect of it for me uh especially vivian westwood and her her own art so you know it's it's very easy to think of like oh the, you know uh these guys were just pulled together to sell some clothes and that's it but the clothes that they were being dressed up in were in itself 
the expression and the art yes. of Vivian Westwood. And I, I, and it was all, you know, in that sort of naive young way, an expression um, against certain, you know, political and social ideologies that they were attempting to dismantle. So I feel like there, there are elements that are sincere, but there are also elements that are performative. And while the, the band is like a couple steps away from a, a like a boy band in the nineties and the way it was pulled together, I think the intent was sincere across the board. I actually had a, uh, a, a different uh, viewpoint on the show. Um, I definitely didn't uh, uh, find it as enjoyable as, as you guys did. Um, I think I had a big problem with uh, like the, the writing of the dialogue. Um, a lot of times it felt, it felt very, uh, forced in in a way to uh, specifically uh johnny rotten's dialogue where uh he was constantly like saying things that uh ended up being used as as lyrics in in the songs almost as as like a a, a, a tease or like an easter egg to to fans or whatever and i thought uh, the actor that that played johnny rotten was i don't i don't know it almost came across that he was more of a cartoon character he seemed very but maybe that's who johnny rotten really was uh um i haven't seen uh, and i haven't seen any like the documentaries like uh like the filth and the fury i haven't seen that um so i'm not sure how accurate that is um but yeah like i just i i had a lot of trouble getting into um anything where the band wasn't playing like a lot of the other stuff uh i felt was a, a little slow and, and it, it dragged a bit um but I did appreciate the fact that the the actors all learned uh, how to play the instruments, uh, so they could you know uh, have a little bit of realism in, in a lot of the live performances. Um, I thought uh, whenever the band was was playing, there was a a, a ton of energy in the show. Um, I thought the the girl Sydney Chandler who played Chrissy Hind, I thought she was really good. Um, I think she put on the best performance of the show, and. Uh, and Maisie Williams for her small role as, uh, oh, what was her name? Uh, Jordan. 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 I, I thought she was really good too, uh, for the little bit uh, that she was in it. Um, but the rest of the performance didn't really uh, uh, strike me as being great. Like they weren't terrible, uh, but uh, um, I, I, I didn't think the uh, the guys in the in the band were extraordinary and. There were a couple of times with uh, uh, the Game of Thrones actor that played uh, Malcolm McLaren. He kind of, uh, it, it felt a little over, but again, that might have been the actual guy uh, himself and, and how he was as a real person. But for me, it, uh, it, was, it was a bit of a, uh, it was a little over for me. Um, so like, um, so for the, for the dialogue um, that, uh, especially the stuff that I, that I was talking about, you guys didn't, uh, you find you find like everything like had a good flow like the the conversation between the band members seemed i don't know um <clears throat> well I, I mean i felt like so the one thing i did think and i don't know if this is part of what you're getting at certainly i think there's there's points where the band members feel more articulate 
than maybe they were in real life, you know, like they're quoting, like every line they're throwing out is like quotable and poignant and important, you know, and I think a lot of these guys were not like that. But I, I do think Malcolm McLaren is kind of that kind of guy where he's he was thinking about what he was trying to do. So I, I feel like his dialogue is kind of believable. And I actually think Johnny Rotten to some degree. I mean, I, I don't know. Again, it is interesting that he objected so much to this show because I feel like he has an interesting arc. And by the end, you really feel like he is a bit of a bit of an unsung genius in the band and and uh i don't know i don't know if that's totally true but i kind of got that from the show anyway well malcolm mclaren is a, a far out dude so i i thought the actor was pretty good in his portrayal but i agree with you greg he seems like he's like he's larger than life and very strange but he he was a legit strange dude he was an odd odd duck um but arguably a genius too right so uh it was, I thought it was a good portrayal with Johnny Rotten. One thing I liked is he always seems like he's a caricature of who he thinks he's supposed to be. And that was very evident when he first tries out for the band. He seems to be laying on very thick. What I liked about the series is by the end, you have moments where he's a little more casual with the band. You see that that kind of is um, sanded down a bit where maybe he's a bit more himself uh, there are two points in, in the series where I thought that it was very good, a peek into me, maybe what he would be like when he's with very close friends or family, um, when he's uh, with his, when they're all around at his parents' house listening to the record, uh, and also in the kitchen when he's talking to the crazy lady, right? It's, to me, those were kind of peeks into his human side or of maybe what he would be like when he's at his most natural not pretending all the time. And I, I think that's an unfortunate fate that he has is he always kind of has to be this quote, punk rock front man. Um, and Vivian Westwood actually in a recent quote, they were talking about Johnny and she said, you know, he really hasn't progressed and maybe that's why he has a problem with it. He's kind of stuck in that role. And that's a, that's a strange prison to be in. Yeah. I, I think his lack of participation or at the very least his public sort of resistance towards it comes from that sort of holdover of his punk ideals like the sex pistols story would never should never be told um on a, a in a series that ends up on disney plus you know <laughs> and, it, and it's like well i mean yeah it is kind of weird but the sex pistols at this point are so not what they were in the the late seventies, like they're, it's they're they're a commercial now. Punk um, rock is not what it was then. Like it's you know become pop punk and et cetera, everything else. So, but he he in terms of the performances, I think I just really was uh, caught by the tone of the show. Like the editing is very manic at times. The first episode, they're using a lot of miniatures to represent uh, London, like the the uh, subway cars are miniatures, and so I feel like that over the top cartooniness. There is an element of that inherent in all of the real members of that band, and that band itself, it was a bit of a cartoon. But within the context of this show, it feels like they're trying to create something mythic, like something that is. Uh, perpetuating 
the legend of the Sex Pistols rather than simply portraying the reality of that time. You can look at something like Sid and Nancy, the Alex Cox film, which I think is more that that's still a little bit, you know, mythic. And the romance of Sid and Nancy is portrayed in this way that's very glorified um, with, you know, the garbage falling in slow motion and them kissing in the alley. But that feels a little more uh, uh, aesthetically centered and and sort of like a a reality than this show does i feel like this show is really attempting to tell the story of the band in a way that is true in terms of the, the things that happened but presenting it in a package that doesn't demystify the the legend or the effect of the band or their individual personalities so it, it worked for me in that regard the um I, I, the the writer uh uh Craig Pierce I think his name was um I I I looked him up to see what Elsie's uh, done he he's worked with Baz Luhrmann a lot and I fucking hate Baz Luhrmann movies so <laughs> you, you must be like torn on the Elvis movie I, that's coming out it is it is very troubling for me being like a, a massive <laughs> Elvis fan and having this guy uh, direct an Elv- a movie about Elvis so I mean I'll probably still see it but this uh, guy I think wrote the movie as well yeah, yeah well great <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited about it even more now, but uh, but yeah. So I, maybe that uh, uh, is what what bothered me a lot that, that it's very similar to to a bunch of movies that I, that I don't like. Um, people get very upset when I say that I don't like Moulin Rouge. Uh, whatever. <laughs> they need to grow up. That's right. <laughs> get over yourselves. <laughs> Soundboard. <laughs> <laughs> well that one went that one went on a while that's pretty good um so often with uh with biopics um it gets very biopicky uh which is a, a term i'm going to coin for the show um where they they stretch uh a lot of like the truths uh to make it more i guess more dramatic uh, and and uh kind of make the story flow so um a lot of the stuff uh so glenn glenn matlock uh, he's uh in the band from uh like the very beginning uh but he actually doesn't come in uh uh for quite some some time um like steve jones and paul cook they did play uh, together in a band that was called the strand uh which then they changed the name to the swankers and they used that wanker joke like what three times in the show <laughs> now and, i'm remembering uh, why frank probably hates this probably when, and, I thought it was weird that they they overlooked the uh, point in Glenn Matlock's career when he became a lawyer. <laughs> that would that would that would have that would took a turn for the show for sure. Matlock, um, <laughs> but uh, but they did have the, but that guy Wally was in the uh, band. Shut up! You didn't get the joke. <laughs> shut up! <laughs> Uh, he did get fired. Uh, there were three other people who were originally that band that they just uh, erased from the show altogether. Um, but uh, 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 Malcolm was the guy that uh, thought that uh, Glenn Malick would be a good fit for the band because he actually worked also at that sex store. Um, 
so I mean, the fact that they focus so much on that that store, I was kind of surprised that they uh, they kind of eliminated that bit and just kind of put them already in the band and um, kind of skipped over that part. But that wasn't uh, that wasn't too big of a deal. It, it uh, kind of makes sense because you know the the band as it is feels like a lot of the same energy across the board. So I, I think wherever they could find something that differentiates each band member, they really leaned into that so they could establish personalities like um, the drummer's Paul Cook. Yeah. The way in which he is like the uh, has like the support of his family. And I, I love that stuff where, you know, they're letting him play drums in their bedroom to prepare and they're very supportive and they're listening to the album and they're like, wow, yeah. Um, and the fact that he was close to just not joining the band because he had these other aspirations. And I, I think that sort of the Glenn Matlock thing feels similar to that, where it's like, we need someone in here who disrupts the, the uh, feeling that all of these guys are just dirty scumbag punks. Whose, whose parents really love them. Well, Maybe not Steve Jones, but <laughs> yeah. Well, you yeah. could argue that they loved him a very form much. Of love. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Um, so uh, when when Steve Jones gets uh, arrested, um, he he actually wasn't busted stealing gear from from Hawkwind and uh, uh, Doug. I'm sure you're very familiar with Hawkwind. Yeah, I love that. I love that. That was the end of the one episode. Yeah, I loved Lemmy, and uh, where Steve gets the shit kicked out of him by the cops. Uh, in reality, um, Steve Jones actually doesn't remember uh, what he got arrested for, but Malcolm McLaren did go and stand up for him and say that he was an upstanding member of society. But I'm sure the whole dramatic part of him coming in at the last minute and telling that story about his beloved uncle Dicky. Um, again, probably not accurate, but, 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 but made for the show, but I, I appreciated them, uh, having, uh, having a little, uh, a bit of Hawkwind uh, in the show. Well, that's a cool part of their, their myth, to be honest, is the fact that they kind of stole these artifacts from other legends, right? took them into the band and then went forward. Right. So that's a very romantic thing. And it's, it's a really cool part of their story. And I liked kind of that the show started with him kind of skulking about and getting the gear. I thought that that was, that was awesome. There's also an interesting element when you hear about some of these bands pre, you know, Sex Pistols, pre Ramones, when they're younger and they're talking about their influences. And it's, yeah. it's often like what was kind of popular in the underground. Like you, you would imagine, oh, who were the Sex Pistols influenced by? And, they, you know, to understand that it's David Bowie and a lot of the glam rockers, it makes sense for the time. But it also points to them being, again, just young kids who were into the same music that a lot of people were at the time who weren't into disco or whatever. Um, it's like the Ramones being into the Beatles, you know, like the fact that the name the Ramones comes from Beatles lore. It, it, it's kind of interesting to just it feels like a sincerity that yes. you get access to that kind of breaks through the the edgy facade so i i liked seeing all of that stuff the the bowie love and apparently they actually did steal gear from bowie's ziggy stardust tour 
it would be much more difficult to steal gear from a band nowadays, I think. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> at least right off the stage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can always count on a, a snoozing security guard at uh, venues like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the most uh, egregious thing that they uh, uh, kind of embellished was uh, Chrissy Hines' role in in the in the band itself. Like, so uh, she did work at that store, uh, Sex, before uh, she formed the Prefent, uh, Pretenders, um, and she was around a little bit during the early days of the band. She was sort of friends with Johnny Rotten and Sid, but. Uh, um, the whole romance behind between her and Steve Jones wasn't really a thing. Uh, I think they hooked up once or twice, according to, to Chrissy Hind. Um, she was actually pretty shocked when she saw the the, the final cut of of the show and, and how much she was in it. Uh, but uh, she really didn't even work at that store for very long, although it felt like uh, she worked there for for quite a bit of time. So they really uh, turned her uh, into a, like a, a major character and, and part of uh, the Sex Pistols uh, history for their show. Um, and I don't know. It, it, I- Again, not not to continually like fall back on this as a an excuse, but in, especially the fact that this is coming from Steve Jones's memoir about his time in the band. If he had, I haven't read the book. I don't know if there's stuff in the book that suggests that maybe he had more of a thing for her than she did for him, and those couple hookups meant more to him. But it being from his perspective. Which is, again, another thing that's interesting, that it's from Steve Jones' perspective and not Johnny Rotten's or Sid Vicious's, which is, I think, interesting. Um, it, it's a, another expansion on that that sort of fantasy um, feeling, I think. And for anyone who isn't aware of the, the backstory that you're talking about, Greg, I think it works. And for people who are aware of it, it might be kind of weird or off-putting, but I think it does fit into, like... The, the the sort of um, young in love, you know, uh, romantic side of of a story like this, like again, part of a mythology. Yeah, I mean, it it definitely did help uh, take that Steve Jones character from one place to another throughout the show by having, um, you know, uh, the Chrissy Hind character as someone to fall back on whenever he needed. Um, that little bit of boost, like if, if the stuff with his uh, stepfather was getting to him or he was getting frustrated with the band, he kind of always ended up back uh, uh, where Chrissy Hind was. And um, it, it did help move the story along, um, but uh, I just and felt she, it was interesting. She also serves as a personification of his growing love for music, right? And she serves as his muse in the series, right? So like to the whole myth thing, right? Like... Um, he's becoming a musician. He's enjoying becoming a musician. And it's rock and roll, so he's fucking his muse. And it all makes sense. <laughs> and in that way, it's propelling the story forward one thrust at a time. So, uh, yeah, I like the character. And uh, e- again, even if it wasn't a real romance, uh, some of the moments between the two characters were some of my favorite in the in the series. Yeah. I, I think that's important to mention uh, the whole idea of her being his muse and, and um, 
you know, or her, I guess it's kind of him being her muse. Like they're, they're sharing back and forth yeah. their love of music. And she's clearly more talented than he is. And she has a drive as well. But it it helps with that perspective of the Sex Pistols just being a band that was put together to, to sell clothing. You see some of the actual true passion via some of the, the band members that ends up, I think, clashing with other band members that maybe aren't taking it as seriously. Like the, the famous moment when Steve Jones unplugs Sid yeah. Vicious's bass during that performance makes sense based on, like within the context of the show, Steve Jones is taking this seriously. He's pushing this forward. He's writing a lot of the songs alongside Matlock and um <laughs> they're uh they're it's, on this bright path. blue suit <laughs> and then you know you get sid vicious coming in and it's like okay this guy is just here to provide the image and that's an interesting i think contrast as well yeah and chrissy hines also a bit of an outsider like she's an american she's not totally in the punk rock scene like she's kind of like a bit looking at it from the outside so that gives you that perspective a bit too yeah she can kind of bring everyone down to earth everyone she does not feel as much like a cartoon character so whenever someone acts like a you know really puts on this persona she can kind of cut through it in a way that's uh self-aware and i think probably is like the the Han Solo everyman of this this show, pointing out how weird the the forces and the creatures and everything. You're you're able to tie this into Star Wars. That was impressive. Disney Plus, baby. <laughs> Synergy. It all goes together. <laughs> but what if uh if Chrissy Hind had actually joined the Sex Pistols? Like she thought in the show that they were gonna ask her. Now, where would the band have gone at that point? I, I thought this was leading to you doing an impression, like when the <laughs> comedians are like, what if Chrissy Hind actually joined the Sex Pistols? Might have sounded something like this. <laughs> Doug, as a uh, comedian, uh, how appreciative of, are you of comedians that do bits like that? I think it's it. great. Keep it up. <laughs> <laughs> great stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, that was that was an interesting thing too. I don't know if it's a part of the actual uh, legacy, but her feeling like she was passed up on for Sid Vicious. I think that speaks to the intent of the band a little bit as well, at least in that at that point of their short career, and says something very honest. Like Doug, you were saying, you were surprised how honest the show was in terms of representing that side of the manipulated sort of formed band the fact that they actively went for someone who cannot play bass and was high on drugs and you know always getting into trouble they pass up chrissy hine for him um or she felt that they did suggests that her character doesn't think they're taking music as seriously as she does and that moment when he goes and Steve Jones sees her uh, playing with the Pretenders, it, I, or whatever, I guess an early version of the Pretenders, mm -hmm. and the feeling of like, oh, I'm watching an act, like she's going to be yeah. 
huge. Like I'm watching an actual musician where it's really all about the music. It's she's able to do this without this clothing line. I, I think well, it's very honest about that. Well, and that's funny that you mentioned that because the band m- maybe were becoming well, I imagine they were more successful than they ever dreamed, but they were also becoming musicians. And then there's a fork in the road where they're like, no, we're going to go this way. And we're going to go with Sid. And the juxtaposition of that is where you have that other character making it as a real musician, right? And the the pistols crash and burn because they just become about the image and it blows up. Yeah, and it's interesting that the way the show is structured, it is like Sid comes in and just destroys it. You know, it's... It's not, uh, I don't think it's very glamorous in that regard with, with Sid Vicious. And it also, like the, the, the uh, time compression in certain elements of the story, it did feel like they kind of compressed the Sid Vicious stuff a little bit, which I was surprised by. Maybe because it's been told before yeah, so that's... many times. And it's not his show, it's not his perspective, but... Um, I thought it was interesting that that was kind of just like a two episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's arc. that's that's the next thing I was going to ask because you know we have the Sid and Nancy movie, um, but you know arguably Sid and Nancy um, uh, are more popular uh, in culture than maybe Johnny Rotten is or and and the rest of the actual band. Um, they, uh, you know, I, I I did like how they, um, um, you know. Like Sid was laid up, and they did record uh, the album w- without him actually uh, playing on it. Um, although uh, there is one one song that he actually did play on, but it's it's they recorded over top of it, so it's it's still there somewhere. Uh, one thing they didn't do in the show is uh, uh, Malcolm McLaren actually reached out. Uh, to Glenn Matlock to ask him to come in and play bass when they recorded the album after they had fucking kicked him out. <laughs> which is a bit of a slap in the face, which I thought would have been kind of a funny thing to actually include into the show. Uh, so I was surprised that they didn't. Yeah. Uh, but so, so what did you think about the, um, of what we did see of the whole Sid and Nancy thing, her portrayal and how, I mean, they did change how they actually met. I think Johnny Rotten actually introduced the two of them. So she didn't just kind of show up at a show uh, as they did uh, in this series. But uh, so what did you guys think about what they did with, with just Sid and Nancy and the time that they had? Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I had the same thought. Like I felt like, well, you know, the movie Sid and Nancy exists. It's still pretty highly regarded. Like they probably didn't want to, you know, redo all that. And as Jay said, it's not really from their perspective. It's not really their story. Um, And, but, you know, I think what was there was an important part of the story still, you know, like obviously it leads to kind of the end of the band. Um, And I think it is, you know, you start thinking about, and obviously they make this comparison, but like the, in the history of rock, there's always like the, uh, the the women who get involved and then they always somehow take the blame for ruining the band or something. And it's like, I don't know, there's just that common, you know, you got, uh, you know, obviously John and Yoko, Kurt and Courtney, like I, there's got to be a million other similar stories like that. And I think just, I, I don't know, like not that it has anything new to say about that but it's just an interesting recurring theme in rock bands so 
Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the image of Sid, like, I mean, Danny in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is wearing a Sid Vicious shirt. I mean, that says it all right there. Like, he's the enduring <laughs> image of the Sex Pistols. <laughs> Um, I, I would say the the uh, the legacy of Sid Vicious was from the actual professional wrestler who named himself Sid Vicious <laughs> in World Championship <laughs> Wrestling and in the NWA uh, in the eighties. Well, I saw a YouTube video of him breaking his leg clean in half. Oh, that's a that's, good video. Oh my god, <laughs> it's gruesome as shit. Yeah, <laughs> I I think one thing that they did with that aspect of the story in this series that isn't quite there in the Sid and Nancy film is really landed again that these were kids. The the performer who plays Sid looks young, acts young. There's an, uh, a little bit of a childlike nature to Sid in this that I don't think is really expressed in, in other um, things that have been done about him. And I, I think that element of um, him being pulled into this band and it being the worst thing for him uh, because of his his uh, immaturity and his background with his mother um, giving him drugs. And I know Johnny Rotten, maybe this is part of why he doesn't want to watch the series because he's very regretful that he pulled Sid Vicious into that band and takes some responsibility for ultimately what happened to him um so it, it's probably still a, a painful thing for him but i just really got the feeling of watching two young people who are completely lost coming from broken homes finding some uh outlet for their uh artistic expression but being um not being mature enough to channel all of their energy into that positive side of that environment and just letting the negative side overtake them. Um, and, you know, the, the portrayal of Nancy, <clears throat> in Sid and Nancy, she is the most obnoxious. Like that portrayal is purposely, you know, and, and you know, successfully <laughs> obnoxious. In this one, she's also obnoxious, not as obnoxious as that film, but the sense of everyone kind of putting up with her, but then also there being a little bit of empathy, especially from Chrissy Hind, but then also Chrissy Hind just eventually being like, now get her out of here. Uh, the whole thing of them trying to get her on the plane and sending her away, the conflict between uh, Sid and everyone else in terms of who was the one that set that up and tried to get her out of the picture, even though part of it was them just being annoyed by her, but also a little bit of being of concern that she was influencing him negatively. The the amount that they dealt with, there wasn't a lot of real estate there, but I thought it was a lot of story for the amount of time that they dedicated to it. So I, I was uh, I was into it. I thought it was good, too, because you had a smattering of Sid Vicious in the earlier episodes, so you knew he was around the scene. Uh, you saw him. Everybody knows what's coming. Um, but I'm glad they didn't spend a ton of time on it, to be honest, because you know what? It's about the band. It's not the Sid and Nancy show. And they spent, I think, 
a good portion of the series. Like at six episodes, they spent two or one and a half on, uh, on them. And they kind of resolved that story. And it also gave the sense of how quickly shit went bad once it joined the band, right? Like it, it did seem like, like falling off a cliff and that kind of helped that they didn't spend too much time on their romance as well. Can I ask a quick question with Sid? And I don't know if, like, Greg, if you did some research on this, you know the answer, but whatever. Like, I've always heard, and, and I don't remember if this was in Sid and Nancy either, but, like, there was always this rumor or, like, people always said that Sid played bass, but then there was somebody else, like, he he was on stage pretending to play bass, but there was people, somebody off stage actually playing bass because he was so bad at it. Like, was that ever actually, like, a true thing, or was that just, like, a stupid rumor that always was around? Does anybody know? I think uh, what they uh, they kind of talked about a little bit in in the show where Steve Jones says that he was kind of playing both parts, uh, the bass and, and the guitar, uh, kind of simultaneously. And I would imagine that's probably more truthful than having a, a another person and I, I don't i don't know if this band really had roadies or anything like that or <laughs> yeah, guitar techs or anything to uh to do that sort of thing but um uh i i, I do think that the, they did turn him down quite a bit if there was truly someone doing that i think they would be a, an important part of the sex pistols lore yeah. I, it seems to me like it's a um a crossing of wires between Sid Sid's bass being unplugged on stage and maybe his bass being overdubbed during the recording of the record. Yeah, that could be. That would make sense. It, it is weird though, like because you know I feel like in this you get the sense that he had never played bass before, but I think he was in bands prior to the Sex Pistols. He just still wasn't very good. But I, I don't. The uh, the the plot to get uh, uh, Nancy onto uh, the airplane and send her back to the states, although it didn't go down the same way that it was portrayed in the show, um, that actually was an idea that Malcolm McLaren had. I keep wanting to call him Malcolm McDowell, but <laughs> yeah. different person. Uh, Malcolm McLaren did have that idea, and he did get his secretary uh, Sophie, uh, who is a little bit in this show. Uh, she does try to take her to Heathrow to force her onto a plane, but uh, apparently uh, Nancy freaked out about getting on the plane without any drugs, so they didn't actually drug her, and she kind of jumped out of the car uh, on the way to the airport. Um, but, I mean, that whole uh, getting her on that plane, that kind of led to that big scene that was on uh, on the Thames boat while they were playing, and that also kind of led to, you know, uh, Sid kind of leaning the same way that Johnny did about about uh, uh, Malcolm, but then it kind of turns out that it didn't work anyway because Johnny uh, left the band without uh, without Sid towards the end. But uh, I, I did uh, I did like how that turned out that that actually was something that they did try to do, and uh, I don't think you can force somebody on a plane right now, and uh, uh, especially not uh, after they're kind of fucked up on heroin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean the 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 i i didn't do a lot of a b comparisons between the show and reality but there was some stuff i looked up and one thing that i really liked is the christmas 
event that they refer to. Yes. And then they go back to it. And I, I found the actual event and the real footage, and it's very much what they describe. Yes. But I thought that was a really great choice because it put them as, again, like going back to the thing of them being kids, but it put them in an environment that allowed them to be kids for a moment. And I thought that was just a wonderful way to end the series because you know what, like it's so heavy. They're up to so much trouble. So much trouble happens to them. Sid dies, you flash back and you know what? They're not so bad. They're not their image. At the end of the day, they're just a bunch of kids in a rock and roll band and they're still making people feel good with their music. And it kind of touched on that when they went to the striking firefighters and had the party for everybody and you see the kids and stuff. And again, that's kind of a peek into the humanness of Johnny Rotten, where he pulls Sid aside and says, don't swear at the kids. That was a pretty yeah. nice ending. Um, yeah. Right before we saw that, there was the whole, uh, um, I don't know, kind of the, the, the Sid Vicious opus where he's uh, singing my way, but it's it's more centered around uh, everything that Steve Jones has gone through over the while, uh, over the whole thing, and you know it dramatizes him shooting himself in the head to to the song. What did you guys think about that? I mean that that is where I really felt the Boz Lerman shit in this show, and uh, <laughs> I, I was kind of turned off uh, a lot from that scene. Well, that that's an actual uh, recreation of a segment from. Uh, the great rock and roll swindle. Um, I, it, I think it's in that film. Uh, so it, it's, not, and they do have little spurts of cutting to the actual Sid Vicious performance. So I can see how the Baz Luhrmann feel of that comes through, but um, Sid Nancy has that as well. It's, it's based on an actual performance that he did. Yeah, and, anybody, and in that performance, he shoots people in the audience. And uh, has anybody seen the Great Rock and Roll Swindle? I've never seen it. I've always been curious, but I, I watched it when I was uh, a teenager, and remember not liking it very much. Hmm. But I don't remember too much about it. But it's like a documentary, but like kind of like a stylized telling of the band or it's almost history? like the the beatles films where it's part documentary part performative um some animation um the the malcolm mcdowell uh <laughs> sitting at the piano thing like he's very much a part of it uh yeah it's it's not uh i i'm not a huge fan of it so final thoughts on uh on pistol doug great really liked it recommend it check it out what's your uh, rating out of five uh i'll go five i really liked it yeah sean i really liked it as well <clears throat> i mean wow. one thing I, we kind of touched on this but like i think it gets across the idea of the band and and in a way punk rock in general being this weird contradiction of like it's kind of like it's super honest and real but it's also kind of like fake and a big front and it's like about something and it's important but it's like about nothing it's like complete nihilism like i don't know there's just this weird i don't know something about it and i think the the show gets that across 
and again, like I think it's it's a, like a Danny Boyle movie. Like it's, it's six episodes, not super long. It fits into his filmography quite nicely. And uh, as we've kind of discussed in the past on Film Junk, it's in this weird zone between TV and cinema. I think. And what was your, what are you going to give it? Yeah, four and a half out of five stars. Wow. Uh, <laughs> I agree. I, I enjoyed it much more than I thought I would. Uh, it does have elements of the biopic, you know, uh, having to hit certain landmark moments, but I feel like they're few and far between. And the portrayal of this story as being this sort of heightened mythic look back at the making of this band helps with that. It's not like some overly sincere um, attempt to show like the coming together of some genius musician and the writing of their album. So I, I thought it worked well. And as I said, I liked all, all the performances and I kind of, um, and he, he's in this film, but it reminded me of Sing Street in that it, if you take away, I don't know if Greg and Doug, you've seen Sing Street, but it's like a British uh, movie about a bunch of kids in the eighties who start a band and, it starts off with this kid trying to impress this girl. She becomes their manager. They And every time they perform, they've taken on a different genre of the time. So they're constantly going through like changes of style. And it's just a sweet look at young people expressing themselves and that joy of seeing a bunch of kids coming together who have some talent and creating something. And this had the same vibe. It's just it just happens to be about a real band, um, so it worked for me in that in that way. And uh, with that, I will also give it a four point five out of five. For me, wow. it was uh, too much Baz, not enough punk. <laughs> <laughs> um, the old Baz bog down. <laughs> um, to be but, fair, I don't think Baz Luhrmann is in any way involved in. No, I know, but uh, that's just the feel that I got from it. And uh, but uh, I'll give it a I'll give it a three. Um, all right, so uh, uh, <laughs> let's jump into uh, uh, some of the uh, superlatives that we like to do on this show, and we'll uh, we'll talk uh, first uh, favorite secondary character. Now. Um, Originally, I thought uh, it would be Chrissy Hine, but I think she's more of a main character in the show. I don't think she's very secondary. Um, so I'm going to go very, very secondary and go with Johnny Rotten's parents. Because, I mean, Doug, you mentioned that scene before. Because they, they were they're portrayed as this these quiet, proper Englishman, English woman. They're listening to God Save the Queen all huddled around together, serving tea. And uh, even though their son is pretty much an insane person uh uh they're loving parents mm -hmm. and i i enjoyed that uh scene of them listening to the song which which reminds me of another moment where you see that sort of youthful uh, relationship between johnny rotten and sid when they're hanging out in his bedroom and he he yeah. offers to make sid tea just little touches like that were great um but having said that i'll i'll say i think um it is tough because it's it's hard to decide who is secondary and who isn't but um i'll, I'll go with vivian westwood i think she 
feels like a uh the matriarch of this whole movement yes. and had more of a hand in it than i had known previously uh i'll go so you guys mentioned the song bodies and that episode and that whole story which i also thought was amazing and i will say pauline as a just her story was amazing and the performance was great yeah i'm gonna go with Maze williams and jordan um i remember seeing the character she looked exactly like who she was portraying i remember who is this actress and then oh wait a minute i know this actress very well and <laughs> Uh, we're going to get to it, but that scene where she's on the train yeah. was one of my favorite in the series, and she nailed it. It was very, very good. I really liked the whole shop culture, subculture, what was going on there, uh, how they captured that in the first couple episodes, and she was big on that. I liked how she was in and around the store, in and around the shows, and we all grew up in the scene where we're from, and you know those characters are always stitched in and around your life, and I kind of really liked that vibe in this show uh, where the scene was very much the part of the band. Jay, uh, when we uh, when we worked together at HMV, we really had that shop culture, and uh, we kind of experienced that, didn't we? Yeah, I was. I used to ride the uh, public transit to HMV wearing a see-through plastic raincoat and no top. It was wild. It was a wild time. Um, that is all kinds of sexy. <laughs> For uh, a recasting choice, see, I, d I didn't really have any issues with any of the acting performance. I thought uh, a couple people were really good, and everybody else was just fine. Um, I think the only one that uh, I mentioned before, how I thought, um, I forget the name of the actor who played Malcolm McLaren, how he, he was so... Uh, over the top i think i would i want a little more of a subdued person so i would pick uh big bang theories jim parsons <laughs> to play malcolm mclaren <laughs> but uh he would have to play him more like his big bang theory character uh i think his name was sheldon was he sheldon <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, i'm gonna I'm just going to jump in here because I also picked Malcolm McLaren, uh, but I wanted to be even more over the top. I wanted Christopher Walken to be in the role playing a 30 year old. <laughs> well, I, I mean, your choice, Doug, would go well with mine because I thought it would be interesting to have the real Johnny Rotten as he is now, the age he is, playing himself up against the uh, kids in the band. <laughs> very good uh, this was tough because i actually think the casting is pretty fantastic across the board i i like the kid who played Malcolm mclaren like it for me i mean performance wise yeah he's a little over the top or whatever but like just the moment he came on screen it was just like i know who that is like it was perfect but um i'm going to say surprisingly uh i would replace toby wallace who plays steve jones you know he's fine but he has a little bit of like this puppy dog thing i, I don't know he just i want a little more of an edge maybe or uh, are you casting yourself <laughs> number one on the list would be me but you know obviously age-wise probably not appropriate i was actually oh, thinking bob, oh, bob. <laughs> I was actually thinking Sting Street, as you mentioned earlier, Jay. And I can't remember who the guy is that plays, like, the the brother in it. 
Do you know who I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think it's Jack Rayner. Is that who it is? Maybe him. I was also thinking Joe Cole, who's like in Gangs of London and a few other things. But you know, I don't know. Also, I don't have also British actors to draw from. One one thing that I I went on that Sing Street thing. The lead kid from Sing Street is in this as the um, Chrissy Hines boyfriend. The, oh yeah, right. Uh, make uh, Keith Richards knockoff guy. But I I also feel like uh, what's his name? Um, oh, from uh, you know the uh, from Nitrum, Sean. Oh. Uh, <laughs> um. Casey Lloyd. Hold on, I'm getting it right. Caleb here. Landry Caleb, Jones. <laughs> Caleb Landry Jones. He feels like just kind of dirty and weird enough to be someone in this show. Yeah, he should definitely be in this show somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> and all right, uh, uh, top five moments uh, from the show. Uh, most of my top five involved performances from the band, but uh, uh, my number five, uh, uh, I enjoyed the the shocked faces of all the old British people when Jordan was wearing her see-through uh, PVC top throughout the city and, and on the train as well. Uh, I love shocked old British people and the faces they make. Um, number four, the scene where they, they, they upstaged uh, the headline act and uh, they wheel in that that big amp, uh, and then they start the brawl. Um, uh, just a, a side note on that: that band was uh, had Adam Ant in it. One of the band members is Adam oh. Ant. Um, my number three: uh, uh, the scene where they were kind of uh, developing anarchy in the UA, and Paul Cook kind of suggests the the reggae beat to uh, change up the tempo. I thought the way that song came together, that scene was great. Uh, number two, playing that Christmas Day party in the epilogue. I thought that was a great scene. Uh, but my favorite scene in the movie, in which we didn't actually discuss it at all uh, during our, our chat about the show, was when they uh, they played in that prison. I yeah. thought that I thought that scene was really cool, and I thought it was really shot well, especially some of the over-the-top shots of the band being pretty much surrounded by prisoners on one side, and then walls on the side, and then guards behind them. Um, you know, it gave me um, you know Folsom Prison Blues vibes. Um, but uh, yeah, I thought that scene was was really cool. I enjoyed how uh, you know they slowly but surely won over all of the well, a good chunk of uh, the inmates while playing Anarchy in the UK. Um, just a question. Is this all top or some worst as well? Or is there two? You, you can mix it up. Five moments. Okay. Okay. I, I'll let someone else go first. I'm still kind of thinking. I was, I really liked the scenes where, uh, Jones was writing with Chrissy. Like to me, those were pretty good back and forth. So I really liked the, the kind of romance that they developed to me, those scenes, were great. I like the scene where the band really comes together when they're at the beach. Jones hasn't been at the beach before. They start busting his chops. He gets a little self-conscious. Everybody opens up. And after that, they kind of gel as a band. Uh, I like the kitchen scene with Johnny Rotten and the crazy lady. Webb, what was her name? I forget. Pauline. Pauline. Yeah. Uh, to me, that was a really good peek inside maybe another side of Johnny Rotten. Um, and that led into the creation of bodies like that very much. 
the train ride that was one of my favorite scenes in the whole show it was incredible uh amazing acting i love that they brought her to first class it has tea and jam it was just great <laughs> and then uh number one i i liked how the show ended the christmas show i thought and i watched the footage of that today as well it was a really special moment and uh that it was to me very important that they kind of ended on that to leave the show on a positive note as positive as it could be given how they ended um and also add to the fact that their legacy has an impact on people and has a positive influence to this day yeah we didn't really mention like the very end it ends on jesus loves me Mm -hmm. like playing that song which i thought was really strange but then I, I i don't know what you guys think i felt like it was danny boyle kind of trying to capture the same sort of sarcasm or whatever that the sex pistols have with some of their music where it's like playing this song but ironically i, I don't know is that what you guys thought or yeah i mean i i think it's capturing what Doug is saying, like ending on a positive note and the fact that the Sex Pistols are playing to children who, you know, you could say would then go on to maybe start their own bands. Like there, it's this idea of them passing along this, uh, this information, like here's how you do punk to these little kids in this Christmas setting and using a song like that probably just cuts the... Uh, overly sentimental aspect of that like we'll we'll give you this nice little moment but we need to have a little bit of a ironic yeah. twist to it okay so my top five is kind of i got a bit of a theme to it <laughs> i love uh, themes number, <laughs> number five the filth yeah <laughs> <laughs> The show, I thought, you know, the opening stuff with, like, I felt like England felt like a dystopia, you know? It's so dirty and just, like, hopeless, and, I, like, that's what the Sex Pistols came out of. I thought that was perfect, and obviously Danny Boyle is very good with uh, disgusting bathrooms and <laughs> environments. You've always, you've always loved filth, though. You're, yeah. you're hard fucking core. <laughs> <laughs> you you love bathrooms too, and we know that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, fucking piss play, bro. <laughs> uh, number four, the Fury. Uh, you know, <laughs> they, uh, I thought Danny Boyle's uh, energy was perfect for this, and I think it also captured you know the just the anger that people felt at the time, like all these kind of outsiders banding together, feeling alienated and finding solace in the music. Number three, the fashion <laughs> which I think you know they they read um, uh, what what's the word they uh, they redid all the clothes like you know you watch clips of them like on that talk show and stuff like all the shirts and everything were pretty much exact. reproduced reproduced thank you <laughs> uh one interesting little tidbit that i was kind of surprised about i mean they show some of them were wearing swastikas and they don't really ever explain that in the show i'm kind of surprised they just throw that out there but i mean yeah, you know, they it, kind it, of explain it do they they're, they're vivian westwood is making those shirts and the kids are talking about uh, the meaning of it, that oh. the idea of challenging taboos. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Maybe. Yeah, you're right. 
but, fail. Uh, I mean, you like, if you fucking just fucking show, dude. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't remember them specifically addressing the swastikas, but you're right. Like, I guess it's, I don't know, it's assumed, I think. And it's like, uh, just that idea, though, that like somebody could be watching the show and think like, what the hell, these guys are Nazis? Like, but And again, it's on Disney Plus, which yeah. in Canada and, and I think the UK, it's just interesting that, I don't know, I, I don't don't know what the rules are, but I remember reading that the Peter Jackson had to fight to retain fuck in the get back documentary because of disney plus but then you have something like this but i guess it's different because it's hulu and effects in the states and it's just being played on disney plus it's not a disney plus production but still it's weird it's weird that you can pop over from uh you know uh what's the love bug the love bug herbie movie? herbie herbie Kirby the love bug <laughs> and then go over and see some pretty pretty uh good sex scenes yeah well with uh with dp uh not double penetration but disney plus um if you <laughs> if you uh um you, they now have uh parental settings so there are uh, shows that uh aren't like disney shows uh you can't watch them on those specific profiles so like a kid who is uh you know watching a lot of the marvel stuff they can't watch the 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 netflix marvel stuff because it's it's exceeds that uh that violent uh level that uh kids can watch so i would imagine that most of the stuff that's from fx or fox that's put on a disney plus if you have your kids profile set at a certain thing they they can't see all that good fucking buzzkill man yeah yeah no i had to change i had to change the default setting so i could see the fucking (laughs) (laughs) uh okay number two the format just i thought six episodes was perfect didn't overstay its welcome does everything uh, start with an f that's the theme all right okay the next one's gonna be the fucking i know (laughs) (laughs) i was gonna make that joke but uh but the actual number one is the faces which uh, couldn't really come up with a good word but it's really about the casting i thought the casting was the best thing they just they captured people without them kind of being just impressions of real people and we should mention carry on, carrying on the tradition of shows and films being shot in the Academy uh, full frame with this, I, I guess, as a, in an attempt to get that sense of it being a, a relic or, or some sort of document of another from another era. Yeah, we, did, we also did mention, you know, like the, the shooting stuff on different film stock and, and uh you know, it's an interesting comparison to Winning Time, where I think this is integrated a little more naturally and and works better. Yeah, it and was, a it, lot of real stock footage as well. Yeah, it it wasn't as jarring as as Winning Time was. Yeah, because it, it went and from it, John C. Riley being a normal film to to old old film, and that's this at least this way you could tell that it was like actual footage that they were cutting to. Yeah, this this had a bit of a like '90s Oliver Stone vibe, I thought. Um, you know, like a JFK Natural Born Killers vibe. But yeah, um, yeah. okay. I, I'm I'm trying to see if I can use the same 
letter like Sean and all of this, but <laughs> I don't think I can. Uh, is, is start number, with X and see how far you can go. <laughs> Uh, number five, the Pauline story, I, I, partly because I didn't know about it. Um, so the way it kind of unraveled was interesting. Uh, number four is actually a worst moment. And it's not horrible, but I think they overused the invisibility cloak idea. Um, I, I like the idea of, you know, as a kid, he's going through this abuse and his way of coping with it is using this invisibility cloak and that sort of carries along with him to kind of feel not seen in the world and the contrast being him becoming like the uh, one of the lead members of a band that becomes this iconic group so it's like the inverse of an invisible invisibility cloak but it felt like they were using it a lot in the first two episodes and then they kind of dropped it but um just a little little nitpicky bio nitpick uh anything in the sex shop is a very vague general statement i liked all of the stuff of the band members slowly coming into the shop getting to know people like doug you were saying the feeling that there was an actual scene of you know like-minded outsiders that all congregated at the store that was run by Vivian and her kind of just in, uh, inspiring people through this this clothing that she makes to um you know to 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 kind of follow this ideology um which is interestingly handled when they have the two there's that whole side plot of the two girls from out of town who travel into town to see the Sex Pistols and take on this identity and then are just given a ticket to go on a bus and go back and spread the word. Um, the Christmas Party is my number two. And my number one, Johnny Rotten offering Sid Vicious tea in his bedroom. <laughs> Love that moment. One of the characters uh, we didn't really talk about on the show uh, was uh, Helen of Troy, the person of short stature. Um, yeah, like I, I was very appreciative that at no point in the film did, or in the series did they have any jokes. Uh, like none of the Sex Pistols made any jokes about it, which was what I was expecting. Um, so I was kind of glad that they didn't. I was trying to find the name of the 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 actress, um, and. Uh, and so I, I just Googled it, and, and one of the Google options that comes up is, who is the, the little person in Pistol? And so I clicked on it, and it says, Hervé Villachez, <laughs> who was on Fantasy Island. So not accurate, Google. You have made a terrible mistake there. But, uh, it's true, though. That's, that's like a, a subtle thing that she's a part of this group, and yeah. no one, like, it's not a... Uh, like these are all sort of outsiders who are yes. understanding of each other and different perspectives. And yeah, that's, I, I think a, a good point. Um, all right. Well, thanks for coming on the, the show to talk about uh, uh, pistol uh, Doug, where can uh, people find you? Uh, socials, Instagram and Facebook under my pseudonym of Hezekiah Wolfowitz. And uh, Sean, 
I am at Film Junk on Twitter, and but anyway, that's about it. Game Junk Podcast. Jay. I am at Jay Cheel on Twitter and Jay Wesley Cheel on Instagram. And uh, yeah, that's it. Thanks for having me. Uh, glad you were able to uh, jump on the show. Uh, once again, you can follow us on Twitter, TV Junk Podcast. You can follow me, uh, uh, The Gas Man Lives. And uh, if you got any uh, further comments on the show, and if you want to speculate what Frank thought about this show, send us an email, uh, tvjunkpodcast.gmail.com. Uh, thanks for listening. Wow, what does that mean? You can watch Mr. Rogers. You can watch Three Company. And you can turn on fame or the newlywed game or the Adams Family. Say, you can watch Barney Miller and you can watch your MTV. And you can watch till your eyes fall out of your head. That'll be okay.